the sound of that tractor means it's time for us to get to work. Welcome to the Give Us the Dirt podcast powered by Hoopa Grading Company. My name is Brandon Lindsay, and I am your host. So today we've got a special guest with us, and he's traveled all the way from Maine to give us the dirt. Herb Sargent is a third-generation business owner and currently serves as president and CEO of Maine-based Sargent Corporation. Just a few years shy of 100 years, Sargent Company has become one of the premier heavy civil construction companies serving more than seven states across the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. The only thing more impressive than the quality of work that you'll see from Sargent is the quality of their people. Anything built to stand the test of time starts with a solid foundation, and Sargent's foundation has been and remains today extremely strong, and they will tell you that that foundation is their people. There's way too much for us to unpack in one episode here, so we're going to go ahead and dig in and get started. Herb, welcome to the Give Us a Dirt podcast. Oh, thank you, Brandon. I, I don't even know what to say with that introduction. Was it? it, it I, I, I needed it to say great. a lot more. No, it was... <laughs> It was like now I got to live up to it. That's right. That's yeah. right. Now you got to tell build expectations that I, I thought I didn't have to reach anymore. I think you've traveled the furthest distance to be on the podcast. Of any if guess. you knew how many miles I traveled to get here, you'd be surprised because I've been all over North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and back to to North Carolina and from it, Maine. And from listening to you, it wasn't the easiest of trips <laughs> either. So it's been a great trip, and uh, you know this has been my first trip down to the to our Mid Atlantic office since the pandemic and I just was so thrilled to be able to see people and shake their hands and you know and and pat them on the back and, and I just my only lament is I couldn't talk to every single person mm. you miss that I do you know we took it for granted for so long and then you get the opportunity to do it again and we just we need it we miss it yeah I mean I for several years I was down in Virginia every two weeks and to to miss it for two years has really been it, I missed it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to see them all. Well, look, it's great to see you. And, and you, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, but we have a unique way of introducing our guest. And, okay. and instead of you introducing yourself, we want you to tell us how your wife would introduce you if she were a guest on this podcast and, and we ask her about you. What would she say about you? She would say that I'm not as good a cook as I think I am, but I, I, I do wash a hell of a dish. <laughs> Well, that's something. Yeah, that's that's. I'm, I'm bringing something in a relationship. No. That's right. No, uh, we we enjoy each other's company greatly, and and uh, she's a big part of my life, of course. And we talk about a lot of things, inside and outside work, and you know, just a uh, just a great uh, partner to have in life. Does she listen to your uh, construction talk? When you... uh, every once in a while, she does. I guess she she hit me up on it last week after we got our uh, episode out, but. I didn't realize she listened to it that often. Well, so that's a, that's a good point. A lot of the guests that we have have never been on a podcast, never yeah. even heard of a podcast, right. but you are no stranger to the podcast game. You actually have your own. Yeah, we started one about two and a half years ago. I think we're 125, 130 episodes deep, and it's primarily for our employees just so we can communicate the different things in the company that are going on and and challenges and changes and we keep uh, benefit updates on the podcast. We keep employees give each other shout outs on the podcast, different things like that. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun for, for me to be able to communicate with our folks that way. And, and they can listen when they want. And that was your idea? Uh, I got the idea from somebody else. Yeah. 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 And it's working well. I, I'd say so. Yeah. We, you know, we have, let's say nominally 400 people 
and we get about 250 listens a week. And I think that's a lot more than would open an email or a lot more than would open an envelope from us uh, because we, we tend to send a lot of email and, and mail. But uh, so, it, so they get a chance to listen to it at their leisure, you know, on their, on their commute home or whatever. It's, it's, it's a better way to, for me, it's a better way to communicate and, and we can, we can do it with feeling, right? They can hear what we feel. They can, when we choke up and we do, uh, when we choke up on a podcast, they know it. And, you know, it's, I think it makes a difference. I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's a, a great tool to be able to communicate to the team, communicate to the industry. I told you earlier when I first went to Brian here at Hoopa Grading, I said, Brian, I want to do this podcast. And I, I just saw this look in his eye like, what are you smoking? Right. I, what? Why in the world do we need a podcast? We was moved, that the first time he wondered what you were smoking? Maybe not the first time, but he was he was convinced I was smoking something at that point. But uh, I was. I just thought, you know, this is we need to take control of the narrative of our mm-hmm. industry, and we need. There's a story being told, and we're not the ones telling it. Right. So why why not? Why not get out there and and bring the herbs, you know, the sergeant corporations in and talk about their stories. Let people hear the side of the business that made us love it. Yeah. And so that was the intent of it. But yeah, he thought I was crazy. Well, I think it's turned out all right. Yeah, it's doing good. So yeah. hey, hey, thank you. You're for hitting, you hit a new low today. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I'm excited about this and. Um, we, you know, in a little bit of research that we've done, I think our team was excited to hear the rest of your story. Herb, you guys are doing some amazing things at Sargent Corporation. So we're going to dig that out today. All right. I, uh, I want to start with, talk to us a little bit about the timeline. Uh, and I know that's, that's a loaded question, but go back to 1926 when, when the company was founded, just kind of walk us through that timeline at a very high level of the, the, the major okay. milestones. So my grandfather started the business in 1926 and uh, started it really with just a dump truck. And it's, it's kind of the same story uh, that you hear over and over and over in this industry. Um, so there's nothing really special about the story except it happened to be my grandfather. That's what makes it special to me. Um, and he, he got into public works. He was primarily just renting his equipment out for a while got into public works, became then became a contractor in the 1930s. Uh, so uh, throughout the 30s, 40s, did some highway work. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of commercial work in those days, and in, in Maine was where we're from. Uh, but in, in the 60s and 70s, the interstate became, you know, something's being built across the United States. And, and he got an opportunity to get into the highway work in pretty big shape. Uh, in the early 70s, my dad joined the company, and my uncle, Ralph, my uh, dad's sister's husband, had joined the company. And, and in the 70s, my dad get, became president, and there was just a lot of a lot of highway work, just a ton of highway. That was what we became as a highway contractor. And uh, the company built or paved roughly two-thirds of the interstate in Maine, um, which runs kind of the whole length of the state. And then the highway work dried up and environmental work came along, landfills, sewer water, that sort of stuff. Uh, So we kind of pivoted into that work. And then commercial work came along in the, in the late nineties, two thousands. And, and that became, you know, the new thing. 
So a lot of changes. In 1988, the company was sold to a, to a larger company from Paris, France. And that didn't go as well as the family hoped it would. So uh, it, in 1991, I left and started my own business with my brother, Shane, called Sergeant and Sergeant, and built that business for 10 or 15 years. That was just local to Bangor, Maine. And then in 2005, had an opportunity to buy the former HE Sergeant, my grandfather's company, which had undergone a number of, uh, their parent company had undergone a number of acquisitions, had been acquired bigger and bigger companies to the point where this huge German conglomerate didn't even know why they had a company in Maine. So there was an opportunity to buy it, and we did, and, and that became Sargent Corporation later that year, the two companies combined. Wow. That's it. That, was, that was 90 years I just gave you in a couple minutes. You know what? I got a, I got a million questions on that first <laughs> right now. So grandfather starts the business in 1920. He's Herb, yes. too, right? Yeah. You, you're named after your grandfather. Yes. And then your dad comes on, your uncle comes on. Why sell the business in 1988? I think it was a, a matter of succession planning. Also, my dad and my uncle had interests outside the business as well. And I think that uh, I think that was the way that they could see forward in a in a family business to to keep the company somewhat intact, but but be able to move the ownership along. Uh, at the time, I was an employee; I was a superintendent, and there were no other family members that owned anything. So that that was the way that they saw that they could move along the ownership and and keep the company going. Was there any interest on your part at that time to say, hey, I, uh, I want to... No, I, I, I mean, I was 27, I think, when, when they sold, or 20, 25 maybe. So that was like way beyond anything I'd ever even considered. No. So how long after the company sold, you and your, was it cousin? Brother. Brother went yeah. and started Sergeant 19, and Sergeant. So that was 1988. So you did in, it when in, the In 1991. Okay. Yeah, three years. And had a lot of success. I had a lot of dusty times. Yeah, I, I I joke that I've been in survival mode for the better part of thirty years, because when you go to start a business, you know there's no capital structure there to support it. I was 28 years old. There was no, you know, my my net worth was my 401k, so there was no you know massive amount of capital there to to get started. Um, so you're you're literally in survival mode. And, uh, you know, a project here and a project there and, and you and you make a little bit of money and then, you know, you have not so good a year and lose a little bit of money and you're right back in survival mode again. And then build it back up and have an opportunity to buy that company, HE Sargent, in 2005. And you go get every chip you've got and you push it in the middle of the table and you say, I'm all in. You know, I mean, everything you own, your car, your house, your anything you own, the, the bank comes and gets if it doesn't go well. So you're in survival mode again in 2005, and you begin to make some money, everything goes well, and in 2008, a recession comes. So it's, you know, still made some decent money through eight and nine, but then through the early teen years, uh, still in survival mode. But more recently, uh, par partially because we became an ESOP, more recently we've we've had an opportunity to build our capital structure much more in line with something that's not survival mode. It's more, we're here, you know, to, we're here for a long time and we're here, we have the type of, 
of capital structure that we can think about things in terms of 20 and 50 year terms instead of we got to survive next year. I love that concept that you have. And we're going to get more into that with all the initiatives and things that you're doing over at Sargent right now. We're going to talk more about that. But I am absolutely blown away. You're right. We rolled through 90 years uh, really fast there. And I want to break that down because uh, what what's fascinating about that is here you are, 28 years old. You've gone out. Nobody's told you how to run a business. You don't, no. you don't know how to do this. You go out and you start a business with your brother. You grow the business. You build a business. And then you turn around and you buy the company back that your father and grandfather had sold. And it wasn't the same company that they no. sold, right? It was much larger at that time. Actually, much larger than the company you were running. Absolutely. We were doing about 15 to $20 million in volume at Sergeant Sergeant in 2005 and HE Sergeant was doing about 120 million. So it was a much bigger operation. They had about 450 employees and I had about a hundred. Um, and I, I had a few people come to me and say, you know, this ended up the way it should have. Don't you wish that they had never sold the business and you just, you know, it had just stayed in the family. And, and my answer to that surprised a lot of people. And I said, no, I, if I had a thousand opportunities to do it again, I'd do it this way 999 times because the lessons that I learned, the education I got leaving as a 28 year old to start a business and having to procure a shovel, having to procure a rake, having to procure a rotating laser, a trench shield that always for me was I could just call and call the, you know, call the shop and say, have this delivered. And it was always delivered, but having to go through all that, having to understand the, the challenges that payroll has with it when your cash flow is disrupted, um, understanding the, uh, the bonding requirements and, and how steep a battle that is to keep uh, a bonding relationship so that you can go do the work you really need to do to grow. Understanding bank, uh, you know, bank rules and regulations and the different things that, the, that they put on you to, to stay in business. All that hiring, firing, all these different things that, that I never had to do before I, I now had to do. And that the, the depth of education that I got as someone that started back with, you know, with having to go buy a shovel is much more than it would have been if I'd stayed inside that larger company for, for my whole career. I can remember back then we needed a bond for a $10 million job. You just faxed. We do, we used to do that. Just fax the bond request and one showed up. You know, when I left and started in business, there was no faxing a bond request. It was me driving down to the bonding uh, agent and, and making the case why I should have this bond for this project. And, you know, here's the financials, here's the way the cash flow runs out and, and really having to make all those cases that I never would have had to make. So it, for me, it prepared me for, for much better than I would have been prepared. Incredible. Incredible. And for those that are listening that have no idea what a fax machine is, we're going to put a picture of that into the comment section of this because uh, I'm sure my kids would be wondering what in the world that is, too. Uh, I love the story there, and I love the fact that you talk about 
uh, that timeline and, and everything that happened and say that's exactly how it needed to happen. And that you, because of that, you were able to get an education that prepared you to lead the company that you're leading today. And that, you know, the other thing, not only did you get that education on the job, it wasn't a, it wasn't a college thing. It, right. It wasn't a degree. It was getting to work. It was putting your boots on and getting in there and understanding what's going on and learning and just getting it done. And, and learning what I was missing too, because one thing I, I learned early on is that I, I did not have well, I didn't have any kind of controller or bookkeeper to speak of in those early years. I really struggled to find the the type of person that could predictably keep my financial system so I could understand it and and review it and have it timely. And I didn't realize how important that was to me. And I, I often re- refer to that as adult supervision. But frankly, it's much more than that. It's someone you can trust that has your back that that can predictably put financials together and that person came to me in 2000 is George Thomas and uh, he became our CFO uh, just that piece alone I, I just can't can't describe how important that was for our company and our growth and then shortly after George came along I hired a guy named Tim Folster and both of those folks had been with HE Sargent in the past, so I knew them well. And so George and Tim really helped us grow at Sargent and Sargent and kind of helped us p- put us in a position so we could buy the company that we did in 2005. You know, they're going to do a case study about this one day, and they're going to talk about how a young guy from Maine can turn around and purchase a company six times the size of the one you're running uh, from the Germans. And <laughs> it was an inter- interesting process. I can tell you that. Was it a painful process? I, I wouldn't say it was painful, but it was it, it was frustrating at times because as a smaller contractor now, you know, I've, I've got to go convince a bonding company that they should put their surety credit at risk for a much smaller contractor buying a much larger contractor with a capital structure that's not ideal for that that kind of surety support. Um, at the same time, my grandfather was 99 years old at the time. And I went and spoke with him and told him that we were, you know, we we're looking at this. And he said, when you evaluate it, evaluate it based on business merits. If you evaluate it based on, on, you know, what you feel, then you're going to make mistakes. So make sure you stay on the business side of the ledger and not not the uh, keep your emotions right. Out keep of it. the emotional side. Um, Did it, was he around to see you? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. he got to see it come yeah. back into the family. Incredible. Yeah. It was uh, from one day we'd say, okay, we think we've got the bonding thing straightened around, and we're trying to run this thing on a parallel track. Right. I'm trying to continue buying the company, going through the due diligence of buying the company while at the same time trying to and, and making those folks understand that I can do it, but at the same time trying to get the banking and bonding relationships in place to support it. And, you know, on one day it'd be like, yeah, the bonding company's with you, and the next day it'd be like, oh, we're not so sure. Yeah. And so we had to come up with a program, a, a way to, to improve the capital structure of the business and – and that way was we we when we the day we bought the company, 
we had a deal to sell over half the fleet and turn that to cash, which then changed our ratios to much more favorable ratios that the bonding company and the bank could live with. So they knew that was the plan. And then we started renting equipment until we owned the fleet again. Wow. Wow. And so it was, so talk to me, and I, I want to get into some of the cool things that you guys are doing. But before we do that, talk to me about the ESOP. So when did you guys, uh, you've, you've sold the company back to the employees? Yes. Yeah, so even before, I think it was in 2003, we were looking at maybe we can buy HE Sergeant. And what does that mean? And, and so for me, it meant this, this turns into something for me financially, frankly. Um, but someday I've got to get out of it. And I have two wonderful children who have dreams outside the construction business that I respect greatly. And I knew that they did not want to be part of the company. So if I go take this on and it works out, what do I do? So 2005, we make the deal, it happens. 2007, eight, I mean, even before that, I'm, I'm thinking, what do we do? How do I get out at some point in time? And so I, I just started talking ESOP had a few meetings, so ESOP's Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Um, had a few meetings with some people that came up with plans that seemed to be more about me than they were about the company. And then uh, eventually met, I'm, I'm in a peer group with a company called FMI and got in that peer group and one of those companies was a, peer, was a uh, ESOP. And so he really opened his arms and he, his name's Keith Bennett really opened his arms and to, to show me around, invited us over to t- talk to his people. And uh, eventually, within a year or two, I, I made the decision. And May 1st, 2013 was our first day as, as an employee stock-owned company. So how many employees do you have? About 400. 400 employees, and 399 of those are owners. Correct. And the one person that's not is, me. is you. Yeah, so on April 30th, I was the only owner and everybody else is an employee. And on May 1st, it was the other way around. <laughs> everybody else is an owner and I'm the only employee. That's a different perspective. It is. It? But it, it it was really a, a done. I was 50 years old at the time and I, I, I really wanted to get the ownership transition taken care of. Uh, there, you know, in a well, really any company, there's ownership and management succession. So, trying to get the ownership taken care of while we st- and build stability in the company with stability around the management structure really was important for me. So, I could do that at 50 and still begin to uh, still continue to manage the company the same way we had. So, there was no really disruptions in our operations, our management, our culture, our management style. So. Uh, you know, that, that was the important thing about doing it back then. And also I, I wanted, you know, while I still had time in my career to be able to see the buildup of value for in on behalf of our employees. And I think that's the part that I am uh, just intrigued by. Like this was not a way out for you. This was not, all right, this, how do I get out of this? How do I sell off into the sunset with my paycheck and cash out and do this. This was actually the best way that you knew to fulfill the purpose, which I read on your website. It says to build and be faithful stewards of the sergeant legacy and the resources entrusted to us. 
And this was the best way that you could figure out how to do that, how to maintain that legacy and be good stewards. Yeah, that purpose wasn't written at the time. But for me, it checked off a lot of boxes. It it kept us so that we we could maintain a stable management structure. It began to build value for employees. Uh, it doesn't guarantee perpetuity of the company, but it it certainly, I guess, places the odds on us. Uh, the The tax structure of an ESOP is is very favorable uh, compared to an S corp or C corp, and we we had been through the, the buyout before. We'd been through being acquired, and I didn't see that as a as an option that I wanted to, to look at. So this checked off so many boxes. It, it it built financial stability. It built value for employees. It kept the management in place, and and it kept our culture and our name. We we didn't have to worry about that. That's a great idea. And and, and it was a way. You you mentioned. I didn't look at this as a way in, a way out for me. I looked at it as a way in for everybody else. Well, and I've I've noticed that about you. You and I have gotten to know each other a little bit over the last. Uh, six months or yeah. so, we've been talking back and forth and sharing best practices and just uh, talking about... I really appreciated that too, by the way. Well, and likewise, because we've been taking notes as fast as we could. And, and <laughs> Herb's got... You've got this way, and I'm sure the people who listen that have spent time with you have, have witnessed this firsthand, but you you have a tendency to drop little nuggets of wisdom it, it, along the way and i'm listening for those and i'm like oh my god you have to I, listen hard for them sometimes. i got to write that down i got to get that one and it's really cool to see that but what i've also seen out of you is that you are just as passionate about this industry and that company and your employees today as i imagine you were when you started back in 28 years old yeah i'd say you know Seeing the value accrete to employees has been something that's rewarded me way beyond anything I've done in my career, way beyond any project I've ever built, way beyond any any uh, you know profit level we've ever seen. Just seeing this value accrete to employees and and see their accounts grow in a way that that really means something. And a few years, well, when I started it, I said, this is not going to be your retirement. This, you know, this may augment your retirement. So you need to stick with your 401k. You need to stick with your financial planning. This will be your bass boat. This will be your fifth wheel trailer. And uh, not this past year, but the year before, May of 2021, I got a text after our statements went out, our ESOP statements went out, and I got a text from one of our guys, and he said, whoa, I'm going to need a bigger boat, which was super cool for me to hear that, you know. Give me an example of someone that started off in ESOP and had nothing, what it looks like today. Give me an example. Uh, the ranges, it ranges uh, anywhere from – Sixty to seventy thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars plus right now. That someone has is vested in with the employee stock yeah. program. Yep. So yeah, so most people at that level would be fully vested. Yes. And that's after how many years? Eight years. Eight yep. years, anywhere from well, sixty to hundred thousand so dollars uh, of money that they've put not one dime into. No, it's it's a it's such an amazing concept that a, that a company can trade ownership and not cost anybody anything up front. And they, it builds value literally for employees out of thin air. It's, it's an, it, 
almost like you wonder if it's legal, but it is. It's perfectly legal. It's highly regulated by the Department of Labor. It's it's an ERISA type retirement retirement plan, so it's very highly regulated, and it's just really an amazing way for a company to to look ahead, depending on what is there for management succession and ownership ownership succession, to look ahead and say, yeah, this, we can put this value in these employees' hands. You know, any business owner, their dream is that all of their team members and their employees would look at the company as if they owned it yeah. and that they would treat it the way. Well, yours actually do own it. They're owners of the company. Have you seen that translate just that mentality and that perspective that, hey, I, yeah, I, I work at Sargent, but I'm also an owner. Uh, have you seen that translate into productivity, to uh, retention, employee retention, to recruiting? Has it helped you in those areas? I would say it's we're really just starting to get traction. The early years of NESOP don't show a lot of value for employees, uh, typically, and, and ours is, is that way. So now, six or eight years in, 10, nine, nine years in, it's really beginning to show value to them. And they're, they're beginning to see that, wow. Uh, and, and we had a valuation company on our podcast to explain what it means to be an owner. And he said, basically, if you save a dollar or make a dollar profit, that adds $6 to the value of the company. So that's not to the stock price, but to the overall value of the company. So and if an employee uh, pulls a, a four-part chain out of a ditch and saves it, you know, that costs $200, there's $1,200 he just saved. If he uh, finds a different way to, to set a pipe or to pull a trench box or whatever that saves $1,000, he just added $6,000 to the value of the company. Understanding that they own, you know, a sliver of every piece of equipment, every haul truck, every excavator, every bulldozer, every front end loader, every pipe laser, every shovel, every trench box that is theirs to care for and to make sure it goes home just as safe as they do at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, that, that its value is not at risk because when that piece of equipment's value is at risk, so isn't their own value. Right, right. I love that. What a great, what a great program. Um, I'm sure that that's been successful for you, and I'm sure it has totally changed the game and your culture there. Yeah, at the company. it's it's a real. It we've always had a strong culture, but I feel like really the last couple three years, as as people's have been allocated more shares and the stock price has gone up, then they've seen their value build, their overall value. It's it's really helped to to make them understand that like if you and I are working on a crew together, Brandon, I have some influence over your trajectory and understand that puts me in a leadership role and you have an influence over my trajectory. And so now you're in a leadership role. And so we're all, you know, every single one of us has an influence over the other's trajectory, at least in a financial sense and hopefully probably in a cultural and a personal sense too in terms of the way we in terms of the way we invest in each other as as co-employees uh, so it's I, th- I think that part of it is we've really tried to highlight that bringing value to each other is is just another way to to just it's a rising tide that floats all boats 
Yeah, and, and doing that, you eliminate competing goals. You eliminate that person who's motivated by the sales versus this person that's right. motivated by the production, and you bring them together with a common goal of profitability for yeah, the company. Yeah, and this, this person is motivated by safety. It's We stopped talking productivity uh, three or four years ago. We, we said, okay, we're, we're not going to talk about productivity anymore. We're going to talk about execution mm-hmm. because execution to me – is more dimensional than productivity. Productivity is just how many widgets did you move in what period of time? Execution requires us to consider productivity, but equally requires us to consider quality and safety as well. So we talk execution all the time. And really that's, that's what we're doing is we're executing work out there in a way that our owners appreciate what we're doing, that our employee owners, families, appreciate that we send them home every day and that our financial partners and in fact our employee owners who who are financial partners with the company appreciate that you know the productivity is there to uh, to deliver financial results incredible incredible so i want to i want to shift gears a little bit and i want to talk about tell me about construction in maine what is it like to do construction in maine i'm sure it looks a little bit different than it does here in charlotte north carolina well they say Summer in Maine is two weeks of dangerous ice skating. So uh, it is different than North Carolina, I can guarantee you that. Uh, construction in Maine, we, you know, we have we have varying topographies around Maine. Some areas are kind of flat, kind of like North Carolina too. Uh, some very hilly areas, a, a lot of rock here and there. Uh, the coast is all rock, almost all rock. Um, construction in Maine is, is, in the whole state of Maine, we have 1.2 million people. How many people in Charlotte? Oh, probably at a million. Yeah, five. Yeah. So in this in this in this area, you've got almost as many as we've got in the whole state of Maine, or more. So we're spread out. We have a lot of uh, a lot of needs in the state. A lot of infrastructure needs. Uh, a lot of a lot of various industries have gone away. Paper has not completely gone away, but largely gone away. But there, there's a lot of inf- infrastructure needs in Maine. It's it can be a tough place to work, but we travel across the whole state, and we're we're about, about the only contractor in Maine that does that. That's both a curse and a blessing at times because our folks have to travel more than, than we'd like them to. But it's a blessing sometimes because a lot of the projects we get on are, are very rural, very remote, and that really helps build camaraderie inside our inside our teams. Uh, you know, everybody's together at night after work and, you know, staying in, in the same places. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of camaraderie that's built that way. Our season typically runs uh, mid-April to, let's say, December 1st, you know, our construction season. We do have projects on occasion that we can work through the winter. Uh, the last couple of years have been pretty strong winter projects. So we can we can uh, keep going, but it's in the winter time for us is the time. I wouldn't say we re, we relax. I'd say we re, we we recharge, and and we begin to to train again, and we begin to in a way raise people's aspirations on on where they want to be and what they want to do, and try to try to move people ahead into roles where we know we're going to need them if we're going to grow. Mm. So how long is that season, that, that winter season where you're not able to go out and do the work? It, it can be uh, mid-December to, let's say, mid-March, but probably more, 
more optimally mid-April. Right. Mid-March is what we call mud season. You know, it's the th- so the whole ground freezes, right? As much as two four feet deep, and and uh, you know it's as hard as ripping rock. So we have to wait for that to come out. But when it comes out, uh, if, if you put a you know a, a cup of mud in the freezer and let it freeze and took it out and let it thaw, it would still be mud. Uh, or even if you took just uh, regular dirt and put it in there and let it freeze, it'd, it'd be mud. So the the water, the snowpack coming off. Uh, and the water content in that in that dirt is just so high; it's really difficult to work. So, really, mid-April, May first is a more ideal time to start moving dirt in Maine. Wow, wow, Maine, New Hampshire. Yeah, that's that's much different than yeah. what. Well, you mentioned something there too that it, um, one of the things I've I've learned about you over the last few months as we've been talking is that, and I don't want to put any dates on you here, but let's just say that. It's, is it fair to say you're closer to the end of your career than you are the beginning? Is that safe? I've, I've, got, I've got less tomorrows than I have yesterday. Okay, yes. all right, let's say that. But what I love about you is you have not let your foot off the gas. You're still rolling. And matter of fact, it's not, you know, I talked about these nuggets of wisdom that you drop out there and people are just soaking it up, trying to capture all that. You're not just dropping wisdom. You're out seeking wisdom. You're, you've been uh, yeah. running around all over the place trying to figure out how do we, how do we, become better what are, yeah. what can we do that we're not doing already and you're constantly seeking out new ways and better ways to do things you've started uh, academy yourself right tell yes. us about the academy and what your plans are for that so the academy started in 2016 and and, and our philosophy around it was we don't need to hire 100 people but we we're, we're an old company you know we have people that have been with the company for 30 40 50 years so we're an old company, and we've got you know a lot of folks that want to retire, and we need to begin to replace those people. But I don't need a hundred. You know, we're not going to retire a hundred this year. I need to start bringing in ten, fifteen, twenty a year. And so we started Sergeant Construction Academy in two thousand sixteen. Was a six week school where we brought them in uh, into classroom. We exposed them to to heavy equipment operation, small equipment operation, some layout, basic layout, basic blueprint reading, personal finance, retirement planning, uh, what it's like to work a day in construction. Uh, we, we, put, we put them up at a local university in a dormitory, and they, uh, they gave them breakfast and lunch every day, and we had them bust to our place at 6 in the morning. So these are kids that graduated on Saturday, and they start on Monday. You know, and now they're adults. And so we're introducing them to what it's like to be in the construction world. And in a given day, uh, we may say, oh, shoot, we just broke a water line, so we're going to work till 8 o'clock tonight. You know, and they, they may not be prepared for that the first time, but now they got to know that someday, and we don't know when it's going to be, we're going to break another water line. Um, so maybe having a, a little extra food in their lunchbox or something like that. It, it's really all-encompassing, and, and we're trying to populate the future of our company with young, hardworking individuals that will eventually be foremen, superintendents, operators, truck drivers, some laborers, um, but, but really an opportunity to, to get into this industry without any college debt, with a good chance to earn a salary the first year out, and and begin to learn what, you know, what hard work and success and, and camaraderie and teamsmanship means 
in the context of being outdoors and, and achieving society's goals, right? I mean, we don't dream them up. Society says, here's what I want, and then we go build them. And what we're trying to do is leverage the money that's being spent on infrastructure to build people. Mm. That's, that's, where we're, that's where we're trying to head with this is we're building people, and you, you mentioned our purpose is to build, and we're looking at more like we're building people that then go build the things that society needs. And that may sound like we're cheating somebody when we do that, right? We're not, we're not taking uh, M- main DOT's money and spending it there. We're spending it there first and then taking MDOT's money while we build their projects for them. Maine needs to be thanking you for spending their money that way. It's well, a, and that's exactly what we all need to be doing. That's what's missing is that investment in the people and understanding that the work doesn't happen without the people. Right. And I love how you're and, – and this is – I know you're a very humble guy, and you I can tell uh, everyone that's listening that you have given all the credit to your team – and no, they every, deserve it all. And, and as I've talked to you, you've been reluctant to take any credit for it, but it is your vision. And you've, you've been a visionary through this and understanding that um, it's more than just giving people job skills. It's giving them life skills and teaching yeah. them about personal finances, teaching them about time value of money and these types of things. Uh, that takes vision because there's no immediate ROI on that. Right. Right. It takes what you talk about is looking at the business in hundred year increments. Yeah. And not, you know, being out of survival mode. Uh, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I mean, I, I do spend a lot of time. So many things I come up with aren't, you know, they're not like ideas that are mine, but I pick them up from somewhere else and, and say, okay, we can maybe combine two or three things and, and make this happen. But uh, having that opportunity, that freedom to be able to get out of survival mode and into development mode and growth mode is that's a rewarding thing for me. And I, you know, I joked to you and Katie earlier that I, I was in survival mode for 25 years. And frankly, that's true. And this is an unusual place for me to be in, in this mode where we can think in terms of 10, 20, 50 year terms and it's enjoyable to, to have that freedom to, to, but it's also so rewarding because what it means is we can do things for people that we couldn't have done before. Mm-hmm. We can do things with people. We can do things in people that we weren't able to do before. Is that what's made Sergeant so successful? Do you think that's the secret sauce? You've got the purpose and values in front of you. And, and what we did is we sat down and we said, okay, this is, way, this is the way the company started. It started with a dump truck that didn't even have a windshield. It started, then moved on to a cable shovel. Then it went to, uh, you know, some larger cable shovels. And then that was maybe some airport work that was around. And then highway work came around and scrapers came in. And then the highway work kind of moved out. And more environmental work came in and hydraulic excavators and haul trucks and the scrapers went away. And then commercial work came in and GPS comes in. And now in 2015, let's say, what we build and what we build it with bears very little resemblance to what was built and what it was built with in 1926. I mean, really the only same thing is there's people and there's ground engaging tools. That's like the only two things that are the same. But 
we've been around now for 90 plus years and what hasn't changed that kept us around for all that period. And it took some soul searching, this purpose and values. I think we knew what they were, but, but rendering them down into an expression of, of confidence in our past and our future was a much longer process than I expected it to be. It took us about five months of not constant meetings, but meeting every three weeks or so to get that purpose and values fleshed out. And, uh, you know, it, we just feel like it represents us. There's some aspiration to that. We're not perfect. So there's somewhat aspirational, but we want that to describe who we are going forward. Yeah. And for those that are listening and, and they're hearing this and uh, are like me and in all of the success that you've had and what you've been able to accomplish, if you are looking for the recipe, I'm going to give it to you right now. So those values that Herb is talking about, investing in people, honoring our craft, doing the right thing and winning in the field. That's the yeah. recipe. Yeah. That's the way we see it. You yeah. know, maybe there's one that could be added. Uh, we We've had them looked at a couple times since we did that. That was 2018. Uh, we've had a, a couple people have made some recommendations to us, but we were, we we held the line pretty hard on that. Yeah, there was a lot of elevated conversations that went in that. And when I say elevated conversations, this was a strategic planning process we went through in 2018. And the thing I loved about that is is people's. Uh, decibel level elevated mm -hmm. in conversations, but the passion went with it and the thought processes, the higher, the thinking was higher than the decibel level almost yeah. always. And so the heart and the passion and the teamsmanship that went into that, the understanding of looking back of all the people that came before us that, that built all these things that we drive on now uh, or land on or put trash in, or flush the toilet into, or all these things that we do now uh, that those folks built before us is something we really want to take and, and build on and go forward with. And it, it's, I mean, I keep saying how rewarding it is. It's rewarding to have been in a room with those people whose name was not Sergeant mm -hmm. and insisted that the Sergeant name got put in that purpose. It was not me. I, I was not going to say that, but but so many of them did, and that was a, that was a it meant a lot to me, and to me it meant uh, my family, you know, going back, my grandfather, my father, my uncle, all the people that they had with them could look back and say, yeah, they they honor what we did. That's got to make you proud. Yeah, it's got to make you proud. And we got a few minutes left. I want you, this is the part where we ask you to give us the dirt, right? You spent uh, the first part of this episode talking about history, talking yeah. about the last 95 years. Talk to us about the future of Sergeant. What does it look like 5, 10, 20 years from now? We've got it described pretty vividly. Um, we believe the future of the company is people. And the, our future, the way we want to address the future with people is that we want them to be full round people. We want them to have significant margins of safety in their life, in all areas of their life, in their financial life, in their physical life, their health, in their in their professional life, in their personal lives. We want them to understand that if they can be intentional about making 
uh, making deposits in those areas of their lives, whether it's a deposit with your wife or, or husband or a deposit in your health, a deposit in your in your 401k plan, a deposit in, in your own investment, in your own future, that if they can build some margins of safety in all those areas in their lives, a problem comes along and it stays a problem and it doesn't become a crisis. And I guess that's the, that's the piece that that I want to drive home to people is we all have problems. It's some people begin to build that margin of safety so a, a problem stays a problem and something you deal with versus a crisis that you're that you're taken under by. So a big piece of that is around that and being what we what we feel is you know a, an employer of choice and that really respects the efforts that people put in over time so that when they decide to retire they retire with a surplus of dignity there, there's no undignified retirement is what we hope we see a company that uh, needs to grow we want to grow and intend to grow and that we want to take we, we, we want to look at opportunities we want to be fearless in the face of opportunities but also we want to respect what we're getting into so just there, that's I guess a number of the things that describe in, in our processes where we want to go but it's so much centered around people yeah yeah and you know it's that right there sums it up perfectly I ask you Tell me what the company looks like in 5, 10, 20 years. And you spent the whole answer talking about the people. Yeah. It wasn't a revenue number. It wasn't an EBITDA number. It wasn't a size. It wasn't a new location or offices across the country. It was, we're going to have better people. They're going to be healthier. They're going to be more prosperous. They're going to they're gonna have the tools and resources to achieve their goals. Yeah. That was the answer. So as part of that, though, we do have the big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah. And, and that does have a financial number attached to it. But we talked about it and we all agreed that that financial number should not be a revenue number or an EBITDA number. It should be, here's what our company's worth today. Here's what we want it to be worth in X years, uh, in 20 years. And the reason for that is when you pick a revenue goal of where you want to be, we believe that can lead you to make decisions that are counter to the value goal. Uh, an example is a company is say a half million, a half a billion dollar company, and they say we want to be two billion by two thousand forty. It begins to drive acquisition of work that may not necessarily bring value to the company because you're chasing the top line revenue. Mm-hmm. If you chase an EBITDA, uh, you may get an EBITDA that doesn't necessarily bring value, future value to the company. It's kind of hard to explain, but if, if you do work in a way that, that uh, subordinates your values for the sake of EBITDA, then that's probably not going to accrete to the overall long-term value of your company. Right. You may get a short-term, short-term win now, but a long-term lose. So Yeah, and that goes back to you talking about how you're looking at the company today in, in 20 years, and 30 years. You're still having that long-term vision of it. It's easy to manage a company towards a number right. and to make that number look good, but at the sacrifice of what? 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing we, you know, we don't want to sacrifice. We, we could stop all spending on personnel development mm-hmm. today and we could improve our EBITDA next year pretty significantly. But where are we in five years? Right. So this goes back to, I'll say, one of the big mistakes I've made in my career is in 2010-11, I was in survival mode. Now, we weren't in danger of going out of business next year or the year after, but we were in a situation where we, we needed to watch closely our overhead and watch closely what we took on for, for costs that didn't go earn money. So we stayed out of the draft. I mean, you use a sports analogy. I stayed out of the draft for four or five years. And you take any NFL team or NBA team or NHL team, MLB team, if they stay out of the draft for four or five years, they're going to be okay maybe in five, year five, maybe year six, but year seven and eight and nine, you're, you're going to lose, village, right? Yeah. So, so I want to make sure we never stay out of the draft again. I want to make sure we, we are in a position financially to be able to say that cost is not going to cripple us. That cost is just something to get us to 2030. Right, right. Herb, last question. What does the future look like for you? We know you've got your goals and you've still got some things that you want to accomplish here at Sargent. What, uh, what's next for Herb Sargent? I haven't spent enough time thinking about that, to be honest with you, but um, – I, I'm I'm really passionate about this ESOP thing, and I have a lot of people call me about what employee stock ownership looks like and how it happens. And I'm never going to be a technical ESOP guru. I'm never going to know the uh, the details, the, the financial and the legal details around it. But I I believe that. I can show people what it means and what it can mean to their companies if they decide that that's something they want to look at. And so I'm just going to answer the phone when people call. <laughs> I love that. You know, I, it, it's, an, it's an enjoyable thing for me. You know, I, I had one guy that called me uh, a month and a half ago, you know, and I, I don't know him at all. Like, we're connections on LinkedIn, but he has to get together. And he's a small company, five or six people. And, you know, he said he felt drawn to being an ESOP. And, you know, I don't want to give people direct advice, but I think he's too small a company at this point in time, and he's very young, and I don't think his company would get the return he thinks he needs. So, you know, I think he needs to build that company for another 10 years. But there's a lot of different people out there, and I've had a lot of people call me um, and for me, I guess I'm more about the practical aspects of of ESOPs and construction companies, more specifically dirt companies, I guess, um, and in what it can do for employees, more so than I am about the uh, the financial and the legal aspects of it. Yeah. Again, another great answer. I asked you about the future for you. It wasn't I'm going to go join a country club. I'm I'm going to get on a boat. It's I'm going to keep coaching. I'm going to keep helping. I'm going to keep talking to folks and and um and I want to I want to be involved and I want to help people. Well, there's a lot of reward to that, right? I mean that 
when when you have an opportunity to impact one person, even if it's an employee at work, you're likely impacting his family, his or her family, uh, maybe across generations, maybe just in their immediate family. But the multiplier effect of being able to to help folks, not so much in a one-time transactional way, but in, in a way that makes them understand uh, principles and how they apply to life and to different aspects so that so that, that same thing, and, and I've, I've learned this, I've got a coach that's half my age, by the way, um, Alex Judd is his name, and, you know, to to be able to solve problems according to principles gives you the answer for so many more problems rather than just uh, solving a problem for what you need today. You've got a coach that's 30 years old? I do. That, uh, again, uh, your <laughs> your quest for knowledge and to become better, even personally, is is inspiring. That's really cool. That uh, and I think that goes back. We can't. We don't have time to get into it. But you know, you've been mentored along the way. You've had folks in your life that have uh, walked alongside of you and helped you get to where you are. You've done that for others, and you want to continue doing that for others. But you've got people today that you're still learning from. I mean, you oh, came absolutely. in here today with a notebook and taking notes, yeah. asking us, "All right, what what's working? What can we take away to to be better?" So. I admire that. I want you to know that um, I wish I, I knew that I said this at the beginning of the podcast that there's way too much here for us to dig out in an hour podcast, but just, that just shows how old I am. No, look, just some of the nuggets of wisdom that I referred to that I've written down here. You're, you want to help people in a way that their problems stay a problem and they don't become a crisis. I think that's great. There's some great wisdom there that uh, so many things that, uh, don't have to become crisis, turn into crisis because we don't know how to handle them. And we a don't flat tire is a flat tire unless you don't have your jack, right? right. <laughs> then it's a crisis. <laughs> There's another one. Yeah. That's another page. Um, you have success standards for all your positions. And I thought, that was, that, I thought yeah. that was really cool that uh, what does success look like for uh, a laborer? What does success look like for an equipment operator? Uh, that foreman superintendent. I love that you guys are doing that. Uh, the fact that you are s- still seeking uh, knowledge and on a quest for w- uh, learning, your 30-year-old coach that you have, I think is uh, another thing you said earlier is that as you're training people, your jo- you, your goal is not to just train them for the role that you're asking them to do. You're training them halfway into the role that you're the next role. That's our hope. Yeah, is we can we can train them halfway into the next role because I know when it happened to me when I was in my twenties, I got tapped on the shoulder. You know, I was, I was putting in a run a sewer pipe somewhere. I got tapped on the shoulder, and it and it was okay. You're going to go run this this job now. And a month later, it's like, how come you don't have these reports in? Well, I didn't even know there were reports. I didn't know. Right? So so we're trying to make people. Uh, we're trying to train people up that next step or halfway into that next step. So at least they're aware of what the role requires. And when they get to that role, we've got people there to coach them further. Well, hats off to you and your team for what you guys have done. It's an incredible story uh, and one that's nowhere close to being over. No. Uh, you guys are, are still, uh, the trajectory is is straight up. So well, that's what we're hoping. We're inspired and we're honored uh, to, to be 
collaborating with you and to talking about how we can make this industry better together. Look forward to working with you more. And Herb, thank you so much for making the trip down and hanging out with us on the Give Us a Dirt podcast. Thank you, Brandon. I, I just want to say after I've spent some time uh, with you and with Katie and, and looking around, meeting some of your people, the pride that shows through this through this company is is obvious. And, uh, you know, your people... Uh, this this is something that that they can really be proud of, and you know I know uh, Hoopa has a great name out there in the world, and and just being able to 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 represent this brand to me would be a gift. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot, and I know that means a lot to our folks that are listening to this podcast too. We've got an incredible team here, mm. but it all starts. Uh, with leadership and vision and uh, Brian has been able to give that to us and it's been contagious and and we love it we love being a part of it and I know your employees feel the same and will feel even more that way after they listen to this episode <laughs> so thank you so much again for coming and hanging out with us uh, we I, I want to get up there and see your academy when it's ready too so we'll let get me know going, yeah let me know when that happens and I'll come up we'll eat lobster and hang yeah. out <laughs> sounds like a plan thank you Brandon thank you Herb Thank you for listening to this episode of Give Us the Dirt. Our podcast is powered by Hoopa Grading Company in Charlotte, North Carolina, and produced by Well Run Media and Marketing. Visit our website at giveusthedirtpodcast.com and subscribe to this podcast on Apple and Google so you never miss an episode. 